too. I, I, I enjoy being on, on this side uh, of the auditorium uh, and just enjoying uh, worshiping God and uh, being blessed by our, our worship team. Although I may have just lost my job. I don't know. You did such a great job, Mike. I, thank you. Blessed by that. Thank you. If you, if you have your Bibles with you or uh, if you want to grab the Bible in the pew in front of you, uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, looking at verses 10 through 13. Our message this morning is simply titled Contentment. I'm not super creative, so I've heard, I've heard creative creative titles for contentment messages, contentment or discontentment, which can't be either one. Um, really cheesy one. Um, mine just, we're, we're, we're just going to go with contentment this morning. Our advertisements and uh, commercials are largely built off of getting us to be discontent with what we currently have. So all these cell phone commercials, remember that Samsung one that came out a few years ago? You've got the new iPhone that was coming out, and you get that long line of people waiting outside the, the Apple store waiting for the new iPhone, and people come up there with their, they, they shoot the two people with their phone. And the Samsung phones are doing things that they're, even their new iPhone comes around and they're jealous and, and all, all disappointed that this, this new phone that they're waiting for isn't going to be as good as that Samsung phone that those other people have. Our advertisements thrive off of making us discontent with what we currently have. And honestly, we buy into it quite a lot. We have discontent with what we have. We have discontent with the many circumstances in which we find ourselves that make us unhappy or anxious or fearful. And many times, instead of seeking God to find out how we can find contentment in those very things, we would honestly rather just wallow in the misery than try and begin to increase our time in God in the midst of that contentment. And Philippians 4, 10 through 13 provides the secret to contentment. No matter what we face, no matter what we face, we can be content. So we're going to focus in on verses 10 through 13. I'd like to, just to set the context, read verses 10 through 20. It's Paul wrapping up his letter to the Philippians. Final words to them. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I speak with gifts, 
but I get the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Fragrant offering. Sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Three three points in this message today that we're going to look at all dealing with contentment. And the first of which is this the principle of contentment. The principle of contentment. Paul is wrapping up this letter to the Philippian church. He began his letter by thanking God for their partnership with him in the gospel. And that partnership was through their support of him. His physical, his financial, his material needs. That was their partnership with him in the gospel. And he gives thanks to God for that. And then he comes back to that theme again at the end of his letter. And again, expresses his joy and gratitude to God for their partnership with him in the gospel. He says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And they showed this concern for Paul by sending Epaphroditus from Philippi all the way out to Rome where Paul at this time was imprisoned with gifts for Paul. So much so that Paul says in verse 18, he has received full payment and more. I am well supplied. So he expresses his joy in their gift, and then he assures them of God's joy in their gift as well. If you remember in verse 18 as well, a fragrant offering, sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But Paul is in a difficult place here when he's talking about this kind of stuff, gifts, financial gifts, material gifts. It could be taken in the wrong way. It could be taken as if his friendship continues on their continued support of his financial needs. It could be taken that way, wrongly. It could be taken wrongly as if Paul focused on money and material possessions. But Paul, as as you may know from his other letters, is always reticent and reserved and somewhat embarrassed every time he talks about money because ministry for him was never about money. Paul often refused financial assistance when it came to his ministry, instead providing financially for himself through his skill of tent making. So for Paul, when he expresses joy in the Philippians' gift, he wants to make it clear that his joy in their friendship is not dependent on the gift itself that they've given to him. Now, another danger of mentioning their gift is that it could wrongly be taken as if Paul were discontent with his current circumstances as he was in his imprisonment. As if I'm happy now that I have the food that you send and the money that you send. I, I was discontent, but now I'm content. But Paul wants to clear that all up in verse 11. Look again where he says there, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Hello? In a sense, he was in need. He had need, but he says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, Paul did have needs, but in a deeper sense, he had everything he needed in Christ. 
also the same, verse 12, in abundance. In need, I am content. There we see the principle of contentment. But we've got to ask ourselves, what does the word content mean? What does that word actually mean? And this is the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where the Greek word for contentment is used. This is the only place. And it's actually a term that was used by the Stoics at the time. For Stoics, the word contentment has the idea of self-sufficiency. So Walter Hansen, who's a New Testament scholar, he, he gives a good overview of what the Stoics viewed as contentment or self-sufficiency. He says, in Stoic philosophy, it denotes the one who becomes an independent man, sufficient to himself and in need of no one else. The goal for the Stoic was that a man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. The Stoic philosophy goes on and says, uh, Seneca advocates the goal of being content. The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. By the exercise of reason over emotion, the Stoic learns to be content. So that, that's how the Stoic views contentment, self-sufficiency, independence, not needing other people. Whatever circumstances come, you, by your own willpower, can learn to be at peace in those situations. Kind of this mind over matter philosophy. And you find its modern counterpart, as, as Gus pointed out this week when I was talking to him about this passage, keep calm and carry on, those, those posters and t-shirts, and, and all the weird, uh, um, you know, all the weird posters that resulted as after that. But keep calm and carry on. Or in that old Simon and Garfunkel song, I am a rock. I am an island. A rock builds my home. And an island never falls. That's stoic contentment. Paul uses the same word. And although there's some similarities between how Paul uses it and how the Stoics use it of peace and repose regardless of external circumstances, Paul's meaning couldn't be further from the meaning of the Stoics. For the Stoics, it was self-sufficiency. For Paul, it was Christ-sufficiency. No matter the ups or downs, the highs or the lows, Paul learned to be content, to be at peace regardless of the situations he found himself in. And he indeed found himself in all sorts of bad situations. Verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. The word brought low means humiliation. Paul knew how to be humiliated. Throughout his ministry, through the beatings, being shipwrecked, being in poverty, being in hunger, you can imagine all the pain and discomfort that came from it. All the humiliation that he endured. But in that, he learned contentment. He learned to be at peace in all of those things. He learned to be free from anxious concern despite outward pain and need and loss. This is the remarkable reality of contentment. Joy and peace can coexist with pain and need. Joy and peace can coexist with pain and need. It's something that we 
just as Paul did, need to learn. It's a lesson I am in need of learning, but it can be learned. Paul speaks in such a way that although I'm sure he had to learn it over time through successive trials, but he could speak at this point and say, I have learned. I have learned to be content. This is now my settled state of mind and heart to be content in every situation. So in what places in your life do you need to learn content? Maybe it's your financial situation. Maybe you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're unhappy. You're worried, you're doubting. God, I'm struggling to see your goodness. Maybe you have enough, but you look at what others have that you don't have, and you dream of what your life could be like to have the things that you can't afford. It's that feeling of being in a really nice rental car for, for a trip, vacation or whatever, and you say, you say to yourself, can I take a feeling to me today? You know, heated seats, cooling seats, heated steering wheel. This is, this is amazing. Fear that it's going to break down. And you get back into your car, and it's that feeling of disappointment. Man, maybe it's that discontent with your job. You hear people who say that they love their job. And you think, that makes no sense. Does it? You dread going into work. You hate the long hours. The way the employees treat each other, the way the management treats the employees. You dream of leaving, but you can't risk it. Maybe you're discontent with your lack of time for leisure. You know, I go leisure when I have no time. You work most of the day. You come home to more work. You get very little time ever to relax. And you wish you could just come home for lunch hang up your shoes, and just flop on the couch and sit down for the rest of the night under the dark on TV and Netflix. But that hasn't happened yet, so we don't know. You hate it. In what places in your life are you discontent? What strips you of joy or happiness? What necessary parts of your life do you hate or dread? What fills you with anxiety or fear? God speaks to you in your discontent and says, you can have peace in the inner void. You can have joy in the midst of this. Or as the Puritan Thomas Watson said, when there is a tempest without, there may be music within. That's contentment. That's the principle that Paul learns and that we, by God's grace, can learn. But let's look deeper into what Paul says about contentment. Specifically, what he says about the extent of contentment. Look again at verse 11. I have learned, in whatever situation I am in, to be content. And then in verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. Any and every circumstance. Now, although the context here is dealing with financial needs, material needs that were provided for Paul, Paul's language goes far far beyond that. Any and every circumstance. So every
every possible scenario that could cause discontent, dissatisfaction, unhappiness, Paul was able to be content in every possible scenario. That may sound impossible, but it was. It's what Paul, by the grace of God, had learned. And indeed, as I said before, it does take learning, but but God brings, that's how God often does it. He brings some trial, some difficulty, and through that, we learn contentment in that area. And then He keeps building on that through every successive trial, every successive showing and display of His faithfulness and provision. And over time, we learn to be content in more and more areas of our lives. So here's what that means. We can be at we can be content and at peace in situations where we currently think that it is impossible. We can be content in our chronic illness. We can be content with being gossiped about or slandered. We can be content in the crushing demands of your job or your degree program. You can be content in your marriage where your spouse just doesn't seem to be working out. By the grace of God, you can be content even in the loss of a loved one. It's only by the grace of God. In any and every circumstance, you can learn content. You can finally have peace because you learn that God is sovereign. travel to a climate radically different than, than your own. So maybe it, maybe you visited the, the Caribbean, a big Dominican Republic, as our, our church has been to a few times. So you're, you're outside in a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops, and you're still melting. All right? And here are all of the Dominicans who have long sleeve shirts and pants, and they're walking around like it's nothing. Alright, so so they of course they're hot. Okay. Of course they're of course it's hot, but they've learned they they've acclimatized to it. They've grown accustomed to it. Or maybe it's in Alaska. Uh, where the winters are twenty to forty below. That's that's just usual. And we had a missionary from Alaska come here and people asked him about the weather and he's like, Yeah, it's fine. No, it's no like the entire year. That's not that's not fine. But they they've grown accustomed to it. It's okay. Yeah, it hurts. All right, but but it but it's okay now. Uh, that's something of what it should be like for Christians for the world to see around us. Yes, we're going to deal with the same hurts, the same pains, the same losses. There will be pain. We will experience the pain, but it cannot destroy us. 
do not sin with the same heart, body, or mind as Sarah or Abraham did. Because we know that God will give us the grace to go through this. And I think it's important in a specific message, in a message on contentment, to be very specific. And it's, I feel like, I feel like God wants us to confront our discontentment in one specific area, and that's with our possessions. As I was preparing for this message, God brought to mind my own lack of contentment in this situation. And I'm really uncomfortable to talk about this. It's really uncomfortable to get really specific about our discontent because then we're faced with all our pettiness and sin and faithlessness. But it's in, in confronting those things head on, staring those things dead in the face, that we find the grace we can walk through this. So let's, let's stare at this sin and this discontent that we feel like that. Find the grace of Jesus in it. Discontentment with our possessions. How much stuff do we have that we don't need? How much stuff do we have that we never need? How many of us are surrounded by wealth in comparison to the rest of the city that we want to just not need? Richard Foster has written, We really must understand that lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. In America, there is a cultural idol of more. And many Christians have bought into this idol. Paul says these countercultural words in 1 Corinthians 6 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If that is all we have, food and clothing, should we be content? Paul was perfectly content with the things that he said to us. In fact, that's all he had at various times in his ministry. He didn't need luxury. He didn't need the kind of comforts that we think of as refreshment. Now, I need to make this really clear. Wealth is not inherently evil. There are godly men in Scripture, godly women in Scripture and throughout church history who were wealthy. If God has blessed you with a successful business, or a well-paying job. You don't need to sell your business or quit your job. Thank God for His provision and use your wealth that God has blessed you with to be a blessing to others. Money is not evil. The love of money is evil. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. But 
your heart and settle into him. And the greed of needing to have more and more, you are setting up a bear trap that you're going to step into. It will destroy you. I'm, I'm not going to give you a legalistic list of the maximum amount that you could spend on your car or the maximum size of TV you're allowed to own or to tell you to put a cap on your income and give the rest away. All I'm asking you to do is to ask yourself, could I be content with being unsaved? If so, and there's the rest of this cup of all and his willingness to keep it, I'm happy. And I can, I can enjoy it as a gift from God, as a blessing, but it's not necessary for my happiness. So if God wants me to give it away to someone in need, I'll give it away without hesitation. It's not mine to begin with. If God says to you, you should probably cool it with clothes shopping for a while, you will. If God says, give your extra car to that person in church who you know who needs it, you will. If God says, I want you to downsize and to minimize what you're spending on yourself, so that you can support a missionary in a really significant way, he'll do it. May God give us the grace to truly be able to say, this is truly good. And to be Now, how does Paul have that kind of contentment? And it says there's a secret. In verses 12 to 15, he tells us the secret of being I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is Paul's secret that he found to be content? Whatever the circumstances. Christ. Christ is the secret to contentment. Stoicism teaches, I can do all things. The gospel teaches, I can do all things through Christ. One is self-focused. It's important for us to know that those two words where he says there, I can do all things through him, can also be translated in him. I can do all things in Christ. That in Christ language is all over Paul's writings. And the theological term is union with Christ. It means that when we're united with Christ by faith, his life, his strength, his riches, His endless provision becomes ours. When we're united with Christ, we don't become omnipotent, but we're connected to the one who is. And faith in that truth is what enables us to be content no matter the circumstances. Here's what that means. When, when you say, as a believer, of our problems in the Christian life all come from the fact that we forget who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. So 
If you're united to Christ by faith, you have strength to be content, whatever the circumstances. In addition to that, if you're united to Christ, as verse 19 says, look there, God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, Christ, through His perfect life, His death for our sins, and His resurrection from the dead has done all that is needed to get sinners back into right relationship with God. And in this new relationship with God, through Christ, God says to His people, everything that is needful for you, supply of provision, and that now flows to you through my Son. Thomas Watson, in his incredible book, The Art of Divine Contentment, if you've never read that book, I think it's a Christian thing. Read that book, The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. It's just a small book. So helpful. He did this illustration that has stuck with me and has a way of bringing content to my often discontented life. He says, if a king would say to one of his subjects, I will take care of you. As long as I have any crown revenues, you shall be provided for. If you are in danger, I will secure you. If in want, I will supply you. Does not this into bonds for his security in saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, our King, is telling us, I need you, but not I will sustain you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So, will you believe that by faith? Will you consider God trustworthy in his declaration that you have been called reconciliation to God through His cross, through His death in your place, and for your sins. And if you will receive Him and put your faith in Christ, you will be given peace with God, both in this world and all of eternity, and you will be united to the God who said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Come to that God today. You'll never forsake you. Never look at you enough message with some specific ways that by God's grace we can learn contentment. If you still have your notes out and pen, maybe you want to write these down. Three ways 
three takeaways for how we can learn contentment. First of all, daily pastures where we lay down. Just a few verses before our passage today, in verses 16 to 17, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest causes for our lack of sleep is our lack of prayer. You ever try to go to bed at night and all of your worries and anxieties are most definitely possible if you do that? Here's the answer to that. Tim Keller had this really helpful prayer in his book on prayer. Try to pray before sleep, and maybe you can pray something like this. Oh, Lord God, now grant me the grace not only to rest my body this night, but to have my spirit to rest in and soul and conscience in your grace and love that I may let go of all earthly cares, so I might be comfortable and at ease. Secondly, surround yourself with Christians who have learned contentment. Paul says, I've learned this. Preceding verses, he says, what you've learned and seen in me, practice these things. Younger Christians, we need mature Christians who have learned contentment, who have faced the things that we're currently facing and things far greater and make us tell the stories of God's faithfulness and give us the faith to face those things, to, to instill in us boundless confidence in the ability of Christ in that every situation. So teenagers, college students, young adults, get to know the other Christians in your church who have learned contentment. Those who exude peace and joy, and you'll be wise beyond your years. And you'll be content. And last of all, and learning contentment, Remind yourself often that there is a strong Savior for these things and these things. We are all confronted daily with our own weakness. And if we focus either on our weakness or on our own perceived strength, we're bound to fail. But if we fixate our focus on Christ daily, we're bound to find strength. So let's fixate our focus on Christ now as we pray. And then as we sleep. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son who has met our greatest need by his death on the cross. Thank you that having met our greatest need, we hold the promise that you will supply every need of ours according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thank you that in Christ, although we do not become omnipotent, we are united to you in this. Command with us to strive and to sing no matter the highs or the lows.